Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see so many of you and especially to welcome visitors again as the world slowly turns normal again. It's about time, isn't it? It's two years since. So we're very happy to welcome our visitors, to have you all here, and uh, that we can celebrate Easter together. Now, I'm sorry you have to put up with me again. Um, since the pastor scheduled me on this special day, I will try to make my sermon Easter-like since we're celebrating Easter. But before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great gift you have given to us by sacrificing yourself at the cross. Please let us remember what this means for us and apply it to us in our daily lives. As we come to you this morning, we ask you that you send your Holy Spirit, that you be among us and that you work on our hearts and that whatever we present and we read really sinks into our hearts. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It looks ancient, isn't it? It is ancient. It's about 60 years old. My grandparents actually were among the first ones in the early 60s or late 50s to have a TV set, black and white, by the way. It was not color. And um, it was very interesting. On a Sunday afternoon, the entire family would pilgrimage to my grandparents' place and look into the tube. It was so special. It was so unique. And uh, yeah, we've done that. And even because they were the only ones in the neighborhood, we know that the neighbors always also came. And you know what sounds so unique 60 years ago, or a little bit more than 60 years ago, it still happens, you know, when Bambangan, the village which we support, actually got electricity a few years back, very soon a TV set popped up, and the entire village congregated in front of the TV set to watch TV. So it still happens. It just, it just depends on where you are and in what time you're sitting. But uh, here we go. This is the TV, which was uh, the latest gadget in the 60s. Um, uh, no flat screens, uh, no, no special. You had knobs to turn. And if you're lucky, you got a program without too much flimmering and, and, and uh, grainy spots. And mind you, the programming was from, on weekdays was from 6 to 10, 6 p.m. to 6 to 10 p.m. Four hours, that's it, yeah? Would actually be good if we introduced that again, <laughs> so people wouldn't sit too much on the TV. On weekends, it was a little bit longer. It started in the afternoon. It was all black and white. And first, um, in the evening, as well as uh, on Sunday afternoon, there were the Mainzelmännchen. Uh, this is, of course, a German wordplay. Uh, these little men, Männchen means little men, and they were created in the city of Mainz, which is a German city, so they became, so they became Mainzelmännchen. They were very popular. In fact, they're so popular that they're still screened today, 60 years later. Yeah? So, of course, uh, there was a delight for the kids. They always had funny things to do. As you can see, the guy with the balloon is lifting this uh, heavy weight uh, while the others, of course, are struggling. So here you have these uh, funny things. And I wonder the cartoonist who is 
um, drawing these men that he doesn't run out of ideas. I mean, 60 years later, and if you're shown almost every day, you must have a lot of ideas. Obviously, they haven't run out of it. Now, after the Meinzelmännchens came usually a Western. <laughs> I have no idea when you watched a Western last time. I think people don't watch Westerns anymore. Nowadays, you can choose your program. But at that time, John Wayne, by the way, the older generations among us know the name. John Wayne was the big hero in Western movies. And yeah, I was allowed to watch occasionally a Western, um, especially when John Wayne was the lead character. Now, Western is a very interesting movie genre because there is no ambiguity. You always know who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. You always know from the beginning. Because you may have noticed if you ever watched a Western, and if you, if you haven't, then I would actually recommend you do, that the good guy is always going to wear a white hat, and the bad guy is always going to wear a black hat. <laughs> so before any word, first word was spoken, you knew already which side you were on, <laughs> assuming that you're on the, good, on, on the side of the good guy, of course, yeah? So, the good guy, white hat, the, black, the bad guy, black hat, so black and white. Very simple, very easy. And of course, you would always side with the good guy. Now, we also have black and white in the Bible. We have good guys and bad guys. And just to name a few, we have Cain and Abel, which we talked about this morning in Sabbath school. We have Jacob and Esau. We have Moses and the Pharaoh. We have Elijah and Jezebel, and so on, and so on. So we have the black and white. And then, this was the wrong one, wrong button, sorry. And then we have the thief on the right and the thief on the left of the cross. Although the story is reported in all four Gospels, it is not that obvious who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. In fact, it is only in Luke where we get some more details and where it transpires who is ultimately the good guy and who is ultimately the bad guy. But the other three Gospels don't mention anything. So when we read Matthew, there it says, When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You! who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults at him. So it seems they were no different. There is no black and white. They're both black. 
Here, actually, they're called robbers. In uh, some other uh, translations, they're called thieves. Uh, what you've just read um, or in the scripture reading, they were called rebels. Uh, we will uh, touch on that a little bit more, but um, to for robbers to have been crucified, that's pretty harsh. Now, the Romans were not known for being squeamish or softies. They had a justice codex, though, and would most likely not crucify someone for simple robbery. So there we can assume that there must have been something more than just robbery, that these guys ended up at the, at the cross. Because this was the harshest and probably the most humiliating punishment you could get in the Roman Empire. But let's look a little bit at that. I found it very interesting as, a, as interested in history. I was kind of curious where this crucifixion thing actually came from. You know, it's interesting to know that the crucifixion is not an invention by the Romans. It was reported as early as 600 BC, before Christ, by the Babylonians. Obviously, it was already practiced by the Babylonians, but it was done in a simpler way. Actually, they were the, the, the victims were just uh, nailed or bound uh, to a post or to a tree using ropes or nails. So it wasn't a proper cross. It was just nailing people to trees. And it was not only practiced by the Babylonians, it was also Alexander the Great who actually practiced it. It's the famous Greek guy who conquered the East uh, by the Persians. And it is said that the Phoenicians actually brought the practice to Rome. Now the Romans then, as many things they did, they perfected it. They created the cross, uh, which before that was hardly used. And what the Romans also did, and this is a little bit gory, I'm afraid, they actually tortured their victims beforehand, before they actually nailed them to the cross. They cut out their tongue, broke their uh, limbs, and did other things uh, before they actually crossed them. Now, um, it is, when you think about it, it's inconceivable how humans are capable of doing this, but then, we have enough incidents even today where we know what men are capable of, unfortunately. And it's certainly not something to be proud of. Now, it's interesting to know that um, the punishment of crucifixion has been practiced as lately as in the war in Syria. So we're talking about very recent. It's not something which is that ancient. We always think that crucifixion is something which has been happening long time ago, but unfortunately, occasionally, it still happens. And the reason for this, and this is also the Romans actually already um, performed that, the idea behind the crucifixion is to provide a death that was particularly slow, painful, gruesome, humiliating and public. 
public in the sense that, it, that you left the dead on the cross for days or weeks for everybody to see. Now this, when you are in Europe, especially in our springtime, when the so-called pilgrim uh, movements start again, there is this famous Catholic uh, pilgrim path from northern Germany all the way to Santiago de Compostela, which is in western Spain. Uh, it's about two and a half thousand kilometers, and if you're a dedicated Catholic, you do this, not necessarily in one go, but in steps, in several years. It's a pathway which leads through entire Europe. You will always come across crosses along the wayside as this one. And of course, you see crosses like that also in many, many churches. Um, it is, uh, my kids always joked when we came to Asia and we did sightseeing and we wanted to experience the local culture. We went to see temples and other things. And uh, then after a while, the kids complained, we've seen so many temples. Why do we go to another temple? It's actually true. You wouldn't go, I mean, we wouldn't go to churches in Europe just to look at churches. So, um, but here, just talking about this is um, when you look at the at a sculpture like this, you get the wrong impression, and I tell you why. Whenever you see a, a crucified Christ like this, you will notice that he has a towel around his waist. Now, crucifixion, and that is part of humiliation, is to nail the victims to the cross naked. And in Jesus' case, it was exactly the same. We read in the Bible that they cast the lots over his, uh, his cloak, so he had nothing on. So this is part of the humiliation process. The other thing is when you look at the cross, you see a pedestal. His feet actually rest on a pedestal. I'm not sure why this was done. Maybe so the culture doesn't fall down. I'm not sure. But this is not reality. There was no pedestal. Absolutely not. The feet were, were, were actually nailed to the cross without, there was nothing to rest on. So it was, it was doubly painful and doubly difficult for the victim on the cross. And death could actually come within three hours to four days. It depends on the constitution of the person who was nailed to the cross. And it came by pure exhaustion and eventually by suffocation because the lungs no longer managed to continue. The brain was not fed with oxygen, and eventually the person died. So this is, unfortunately, the practice. We even know, and I found this, uh, and I've heard this actually before, we found archaeological evidence that some victims were even nailed to the cross through the side of the feet, so that means the lower part of the body was actually in a sideways position, which made it even more gruesome. But back to the thieves on the cross. We know very little about the thieves. Actually, to be honest, we know almost nothing. And if it hadn't been for Jesus and the few hours they spent next to Jesus on the cross, we would have never heard of them. But the fact that they were crucified, as I mentioned earlier, implies the possibility that 
they were more than simple robbers or thieves. Now, during the Roman Empire, and especially during the Roman occupation of Israel, there were ongoing revolts and skirmishes. The Israelites did not necessarily accept being ruled by the Romans. So there were constant um, attacks, rebel rebellions, which of course the Romans suppressed, and they were very, very um, cruel. There was no mercy, no nothing, because they called them enemies of the state. Um, and one of the reasons why Jesus actually was crossed, was, was nailed to the cross, is because he was accused of establishing a kingdom, which of course would have been a competition to the Roman Empire. And of course, this was considered to be a rebellion. And therefore, he was an enemy of state, despite the fact that Pilate said he didn't find any, any guilt on him. But he was accused by his own countrymen, he was accused of establishing a kingdom. So therefore, he became a, a, an enemy of the state of the Roman Empire. That's one of the reasons why he ended up on the cross. Now. Given the fact that the two thieves, or robbers, or rebels, as we would call them actually, have ended up on the cross, let's us assume that they were most likely enemies of state. They were people who rebelled against the Roman Empire. So if we read the whole story in Luke, we get a very detailed picture. Let's do that. And if you have a Bible, let's open the Bible with me uh, in Luke 23. Uh, we read the verses 20, 32 to 38. It's, it's Luke 23, 32 to 38. And here we read. Two other men, both criminals, here they're called criminals, this is the New International Version, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, or what we call Golgotha, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself is he, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vigor and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
When we look at this passage, we see two different requests by two thieves or rebels as they hang on either side of Jesus. And by their requests, it seems to me that they must have had some knowledge about Jesus. Obviously, they must have heard of him, and they must have heard what he stands for. Because one of the rebels said, you know, um, since you are under the same sentence, and the sentence was basically, we are enemies of state. So the first thief began with a question. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and save us. It is almost as though the thief, the thief says, everybody thinks you're the Christ. So if you are, then why are you going through all this? Come down from the cross and take us down from our crosses as well. Why don't you do that? Now the second thief rebukes him and says, and we can imagine, looks at Christ and in essence says to Jesus, don't do that. Because if you do, then the kingdom will never come to pass. It gets the impression that the second thief must have known more what Jesus stands for than what the first thief thought. Because he said the following, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why would he say that? What caused, if we read Matthew, Mark, and John, we read that they both insulted Jesus. Here, the second thief, whether he was on the right or the left, we don't know, actually asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into the kingdom. What changed his heart? What made him change? We can only guess. We don't know. But could it be that when Jesus actually, after he was nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, that this could have been the moment where the second thief came to his senses and realized that this is the Son of God. Be it as it may, we rejoice in the fact that the thief realized this man has done nothing wrong. And there's something else when you look at this sentence. You know, in that time, you would have approached Jesus as teacher, rabbi, Christ, son of God. But have you noticed what he says? He, he just calls Jesus very, very familiarly, he says, Jesus, as if they had been together for a long time. So there seems to be some bonding. Otherwise, he would have had shown more respect by saying, Rabbi or teacher, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, by saying, remember me, 
Don't you think there is swings some doubt in that sentence? When you have to remind someone to remember you, you doubt that that person actually may remember you. So remember me always is looking for some sort of positive affirmation. We have the same when Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. He broke the bread, he passed the cup, and he said, remember me when you eat this, when you do this, remember me when you drink from this cup. Why did he have to say that? Because he knows that humans tend to forget. Forget very fast. We constantly have to remind each other, have you forgotten this? Have you done this? Do you remember? It's human. So we, know, we need something to remember us. So by Jesus actually giving us the bread and the wine, he clearly says, here, whenever you do this, remember me. It's a symbol. But even Jesus came to the moment where he actually had his doubts. You know, one of his last outcries on the cross, we read in Matthew 27, verse 46, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an outcry of despair. Because he didn't think that God, his Father, actually remembered him. But we all know that the reward came later. Of course, the father remembered him. Three days later is when he got his reward, when his positive affirmation came back. So we too can look forward to a resurrection, the same as the second thief on the cross. And so here we come back to the second thief, when Jesus actually told him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. You may have noticed I left the comma out. It's this big question about the comma. But in the Aramaic language or in the Hebrew language, there was no punctuation. And today I would like to focus on this today in a different sense. The scripture consistently teaches us that the message of surrender and salvation is offered today, not tomorrow. It is now. It's at any time. So why wait until tomorrow when you can have it today? It is today that Jesus would like to give us the assurance of salvation when we surrender ourselves to him. It is never too late to have that change of heart and surrender to Jesus. Jesus has promised in 1 John 1 verse 9, in my opinion, one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
So it is today. Jesus calls us to surrender and ask for forgiveness today, not tomorrow. So I believe this today in Jesus' answer to the thief is exactly this. Why wait? Because tomorrow may be too late. We don't know whether we're still living tomorrow. So it is today. Oh, something missing. Sorry. <laughs> As we remember Jesus' great sacrifice for us today, let's cling to the promise of 1 John 1 verse 9, that Jesus cleanses us from all our sins when we look at the old rugged cross and say to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I have a small video clip of a very beautiful song which celebrates Easter. I'm sure many of you have seen the song before, but I think it is still worth um, seeing it again as a conclusion of Jesus' invitation to us today to accept him today and not tomorrow. A crown of thorns placed on his head. Oh. Sorry, it was me who pressed the button. I think you have to press it again. <laughs> A crown of thorns placed on his head He knew that he would soon be dead He said, did you forget me, Father, did you?
the soldier who had used his sword to pierce the body of our Lord said truly this was Jesus Christ our Savior he looked with fear upon his sword then turned to face his Christ and Lord fell to his knees crying Took from his head the thorny crown and wrapped him in a linen gown, then laid him down to rest inside the tomb. The holes in his hands, his feet inside. Three days went by, again they came to move the stone to bless the slain with oil and spice anointing, hallelujah. But as they went to move the stone, they saw that they were not alone, for Jesus Christ has May I request the congregations to stand up for the closing song.
Father in heaven, we thank you. Actually, words are not sufficient to express our gratitude and our thanks for what you've done for us, for the great sacrifice you've taken upon you to die for our sins so that we can live. Thank you for going through all that just for us. We ask you that we remember this constantly, and that we don't wait to accept your gift. We ask you that you, Holy Spirit works on our hearts so that we are ready, so that when you come again, we can be with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.